Well, I'd like you to turn with me to Romans uh, chapter 8. So Romans chapter 8, verse 12. I'm reading through to 25. And before we read, let's just bow our heads in prayer again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your words. And again, we pray that you would... um, Help us to focus, help us to rejoice in it, and be encouraged. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul says in verse 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies." For in this hope we were saved. Now hope, is, uh, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Well, we've been uh, looking at the, the Christian life uh, over the last few weeks um, and asking the question, what does it mean to be- become a Christian? What are the benefits that come of being a Christian? What, what actually happens to us as a result of Christ's death 2,000 years ago? And uh, you know, how does it, that death 2,000 years ago, how does that apply to me? How does it come to me and make a difference? And we have worked through uh, various ways in which uh, new Christians benefit from this work of Christ. Uh, some of them are legal, what you might call legal benefits. Um, justified, being justified, or being adopted into his family, uh, becoming children of God, uh, definitive sanctification, being set apart definitively by Christ's death, uh, is uh, an act outside of us. But then there are also transformational effects. So being born again. Receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, becoming a new creature in Christ, or being raised to life, inwardly at least. 
and or being and then being being progressively sanctified. In other words, our lives changing from one degree of glory to another, and we are becoming more and more Christ-like in our lives, day by day, year by year. Uh, this is why we were you know, praying earlier about maturity. That Christians need to grow in maturity. And they will grow in maturity. And, there's a, and last week we looked at the, the perseverance of the saints. That those who are truly in Christ will persevere to the end. They will get to the end. This is, all of this, of course, emphasizes for us that salvation has a number of tenses. And we've we touched on this midweek a couple of times over the last couple of weeks. Um, but it's certainly true that we have been saved. You know, the day we became, came to faith in Christ was the day that the application of the death of Christ was made to us. It was applied to us. The day I came to faith. And so I, on that day I have been saved. For it's by grace you have been saved through faith, says Paul. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Not by works. And uh, then there's a present tense of salvation. There is the, your, your, your ongoing process of being sanctified, made more Jesus-like in your life, being more practically set apart as holy for him. But there's also a future tense of salvation. And that's what I want to talk about today. Because we've come to this future salvation under the term glorification. This is the next in our series of what we might call the benefits of, of the application of Christ's saving work for us. Glorification. That we will be glorified. And I, I want to focus our thinking this morning around five questions. Oh, five. Five questions. So gird up your loins, you ready? Five questions. That we're going to think about. It won't take as long as you might think. Firstly, simple question. Haven't we had enough already? (laughs) I'll explain what I mean by that question. Secondly, when will glorification happen for us? Thirdly, what about the rest of creation? What's going on there? Fourthly, what's glorification like? What's it going to be like? And fifthly, what does it mean for us now? The knowledge that we, are going to, we will be glorified, how does that affect us now? Okay, so first of all, haven't we had enough already? Enough blessing already? And yet we've received many blessings, and we've seen so many of the blessings Sunday by Sunday. Um, you know, and, it's, and we could be amazed by that. I hope you are amazed by all of this. That to discover that God has, as it were, singled you out and has called you out of darkness into light, that He's given you new life and He's He said, I justify you, I have adopted you into my family, I've set you apart as mine de- definitively, sanctified you, and now I'm going to help you uh, become more Christ like. All of this is, is all of God, it's the grace of God continually working in your life, and you should be amazed at all of that. That this is God working in you and doing all these things. And you discover as you become a Christian that 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 death of Christ 2,000 years ago actually dealt with your sins. All the problems that are caused in your life and around you and, and 
everybody else's sins. That is caused, you know, it causes all kinds of trouble. But Jesus has done a work for you that's dealt with your sins. So that the penalty is gone. The power is broken. And you're going to heaven. And you're going to glory. Through the death and the resurrection of Christ. And you, you've, you receive the help of the Holy Spirit. You're not left to, get, to carry on by yourself. That you're energized and you're enlivened by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you're able to live in a new way. Gloriously. And you'd be ama- you must be amazed at this, surely. Surely you should be amazed at this. You know, even the apostles were amazed at it. You know, the apostle John, who had been a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ for, for decades, says in 1 John 3 verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. It's like he can't believe it even decades later. He still can't believe it. So amazing. The amazing grace of God. To be called children of God. And yet, that's not all. That's not all. Verse 17. Look at Romans 8, 17. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now we all know what an inheritance is, I think. Um, some of us may have benefited from an inheritance already. Some of you expect to benefit from an inheritance. It's when all the, you know, the property and the privileges of your parents, of parents are promised to their children, perhaps. And in this case, for the Christian, the benefits and privileges of inheritance will come at a future time. For now, you have to wait. You're like a child growing up. And you can't come into your inheritance yet. And so we're like that. We have to wait. And we have to wait patiently. And it's the same for Christians. Whatever you and I have received now as a result of the saving work of Christ, there is so much more to come. So much more blessing to come. And it's, it's so much that it's quite hard to quantify and describe. And, it's, and Paul goes on to, to use this word glory. That's the best way you can describe it. There's a glory that's awaiting us that we have to come into at a future stage. So if you're a Christian today, do you, do you have that sense of, a, of wonder at what awaits you? I've, you know, in my time here in Solihull, which is getting on a bit now, but you know, I meet people in Solihull who, who, have no, who go, maybe go to church, but often they don't, and they've got no sense of wonder at all. And there are some people out there who who say who even say that you know they're a bit doubtful about whether there's a heaven after after death. But if there is, they're not particularly excited about it. Because I think it's they, f- they wouldn't want to go there. <laughs> I've heard people say that. I don't want to, you know, if there's a heaven, I don't want to go there, excuse me. 
And the reason is they, they think they might be missing out on some fun aspect. And that, you know, it's just so misguided. Um, I spoke once to a churchgoer who expressed the fear that she wouldn't enjoy heaven very much. And she kind of jokingly said, well, it'll be too much ironing to do. Because of all the robes. <laughs> so she always, she's a kind of slightly negative Scot, Scottish woman. <laughs> as we all are, sometimes. Um, and she, you know, she was half joking, I think. But uh, you get that sense, don't you, that we're not really sure what we're looking forward to in heaven with Christ. I just ask you this morning... Uh, are you looking forward to glory? There's so much more to come. So, haven't we had enough already? No, <laughs> we're going to get more. So here's the second question. When will our glorification happen? Now, Paul is not explicit about it here in this passage. But there is a clue, I think, in verse, uh, verse 18 where he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. And the issue at the moment for those Christians is that they're suffering. They're enduring. They're facing persecution in Rome. And and he refers to this present time. You know, the suffering that you're experiencing now is for this present time. Um, And as you read the ESV translation, it doesn't seem all that remarkable. But actually what Paul is saying here is something more akin to a technical term, this present age. He's talking about the age that we're in. And this age is going to be marked by suffering as a Christian. That's, That's a sermon for another day. The Christian life involves suffering and struggle and trial. And I know some of you are facing tremendous struggles in all kinds of ways. But he says it's for this present age. And it's significant because other parts of the Bible talk about the age to come. For example, in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 21, he says... That Jesus Christ is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Um, And we also find Jesus speaking in similar terms in the Gospels. He talks about um, eternal life in the age to come. Mark 10.30 if you want to look it up sometime. And so Paul has this concept of this age... The one that the Romans were in, and we are all in today, and the age to come. Now, what marks the transition for us from this age into the age to come? Of course, the definitive act of trans- transformation and consummation of that is when Jesus comes again, when Jesus returns. See, every Christian expects and should expect that Jesus Christ is coming back. That he comes and and will return, not 
in humility, uh, not born of a poor woman in a stable, but rather coming in glory, in power, in majesty. This is what Jesus himself says, Matthew 16 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. So he's going to come. And that's the day when we are going to be transformed. Now the question is, what's that glory going to be like? You know, there are, there are places in the Gospels, in the Bible, where the glory of God seems to kind of burst out. Remember the transfiguration of Jesus? You may remember that story of Jesus and Peter and John and James uh, go up the mountain and, and all of a sudden Jesus is transfigured. He's like, you know, he becomes radiant. And on his left, on one side, I can't remember his left or right, one side is Moses, one side is Elijah. And uh, he's speaking to Jesus, is speaking to them. And the, the three poor disciples are sitting there thinking, what's going on? <laughs> and this glory is happening. And Peter kind of foolishly says, can I build a tent for you? And I don't know what he thinks he's doing. But he thinks he's trying to help or something, I don't know. Or he's scared or whatever. But you see, in Jesus you get a sense of the kind of glory of the age to come bursting out of Jesus. The wonder of it, the amazement of it. There's this dazzling brightness. And they get to see it just for a moment. Or think about Paul. He, he told this story of how he, was, he, came, you know, he, he believed in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. On that day on the road to Damascus. And he tells Agrippa in Acts 26, he says, At midday, O king, I I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun uh, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And here is the risen Jesus Christ bursting into the consciousness and experience of of, uh, Paul and expressing something of his glory in the brightness that surrounds him. And Jesus is in front of him. Or think of John, an old man, and he receives that revelation, the book of Revelation. And he sees Jesus in his vision, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. So whenever we see something of the glory of the Lord Jesus, we just all we can do is kind of explain it in terms of the brightness of the light that surrounds him. Amazing. Glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Greater than the sun. That is most brilliant. And it's this glory. This most beautiful of qualities in all its fullness. That you and I are going to share in. At our glorification. Because Paul says this is our glory. It's going to be revealed in us. And I'll say more about that in a moment. One amazing prospect. The beauty of it. The wonder of it. The sheer scale and majesty of it. Are you ready for it? I hope so. 
Here's the third thing, question. What about the rest of creation? The reason for asking that question is that Paul seems to say quite a lot about creation in this passage that we read. Um, Verse 19. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And creation itself, as it is now, is is waiting for these days of glory. It's kind of like creation's kind of on its tiptoes. It's peering to see when is this going to come? When's the glory going to come? It's craning its neck, if you like, to see the, the revealing of the sons of God who come in their, all their glory. Creation knows that something wonderful is coming and it groans. It groans. Verse 20, you know, this, this groan is a problem for creation. Verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope um, that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay. Uh, you see, there's a big problem for creation itself because, because of the fall, because of the, the sin that's come into the world. This, the, the root cause of this corruption and decay, and so there's something left to itself. Creation is, in a sense, in a futile existence. That's true of anybody, actually, who doesn't know Jesus Christ. In the end, your life is meaningless and pointless and futile, empty. And creation is like that, left to itself. And verse 21 describes it as being in bondage. It, too, is a slave to the corruption of sin. But it looks forward to the glory and the revealing of the glory of the children of God. Because in that day, it too will be freed from bondage and decay. It will be freed, verse 21 again, which I've lost. It looks forward to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So creation is looking forward to something that it currently doesn't have. So the experience now is rather like giving birth. This is what he says in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Uh, It's kind of like you're an expectant mother and you're just almost at the point of giving birth and you're desperate to give birth. Uh, I've known plenty of mothers who have been like that. You're just desperate to get this this done with so that the child can appear. And creation is kind of like that. Waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. There's a, there's a groaning and a compla- almost a complaining about the current state of things. If only I could give birth or birth could happen. And so creation is crying out. And so the, the glorification that we're looking forward to in the coming of Christ also means the release of this fallen, broken universe. Which is why the Bible talks not only of our glory with Christ in the future, but it also speaks of a new heavens and a new earth. Now, this is spoken of in, in the prophets, you know, hundreds of years before Christ. But there's more coming. 
Isaiah 65, verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Well, that's the rest of creation. What fourth question? What will our glorification be like? And the first thing to say about glorification is that it's with Christ. It is with Christ. We see that in verse 17 here. It's emphasized three times, the idea of being together with Christ. Heirs, heirs with Christ, we suffer with Christ, we're glorified with Christ. And this glory is only attained through union with Christ, being united to Jesus Christ. We'll say more about that next week, Unite, being un, united to Christ. But for the moment, it's only through Christ that this is coming. There's no prospect of glory without being united to Christ by faith. And anyone who rejects Christ has no hope of glory. None whatsoever. So that's the first thing, it's with Christ. Second thing is, the glory, glorification that Paul speaks of is not the glory attained when a Christian dies. What do I mean by that? Well, we often speak this way. We, when a Christian dies, he or she passes into glory. Um, and Westminster Shorter Catechism 37 says this, the, the answer says, the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. So there is a sense in which that's true. Um, and Paul expresses a, a desire for this. Uh, Philippians 1.23, my desire is to depart uh, and be with Christ, for that is far better. So there's a, a much betterness about dying. Um, or think about the thief on the cross with Jesus. Remember, Jesus was crucified, and there were two criminals either side of him, and to one of them he turns and says, Today you'll be with me in paradise. And so there's glory, in a sense, to come. But that's not quite what Paul means, this dying and going into glory. What he's referring to is the glory of verse 20, that comes up in verse 23. Not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the, our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so what Paul is bringing into view here is not simply that we pass into glory when we die, but beyond that there is the redemption of our bodies. There is the resurrection of our bodies. And entering into glory in a fully embodied state. That's what we've got to look forward to. That's the, the old Apostles' Creed. I believe in the resurrection. And so when we die, our souls are separated from our bodies. But at the resurrection, our souls are reunited with our raised body. Now, this question of the resurrection of believers, I think is one of... I, I came to doubt whether Christians actually believed it or not. Because um, I, I kept meeting people who go to church who didn't seem to, they didn't seem to figure in their thinking the resurrection of the body. It's, in a sense, it's one of the great hidden doctrines of the Christian faith. And I keep meeting people who don't seem to realize that bodily resurrection is the ultimate conclusion of our lives as we enter into this glory. 
Um, it was a few years ago now, but I've, uh, I used to regularly have discussion with Jehovah's Witnesses who would come to my door. They don't come anymore. I think I've been blacklisted because I give them too hard a time. <laughs> and all I'm doing is saying, what does this verse actually say? <laughs> um, but, you know, they, they come to me and um, I remember those, these conversations I had and they would always try and talk about the resurrection as though I didn't believe in it. And, and I think the reason that they thought I didn't, they assumed to start with that I didn't believe in the resurrection of the body, because they kept meeting people in the Christian church who, who went to a church who didn't seem to believe in the resurrection of the body. And here was me, sort of actually agreeing with them. Yeah, there is a resurrection of the body. And they were a bit nonplussed about that. So they had to try a different tack with me. Um, but there is a problem, isn't there? That many Christians don't seem to, to know that there's a resurrection to come. Now, it's, it's a resurrection that's it's not the resurrection of our bodies as they are now. <laughs> um, because they're racked with corruption and decay, aren't they? I'm on the way down. Maybe some of you are over the hill and on the way down too. And you know, we're racked with corruption and decay. We're falling apart. But we will not be resurrected in these decayed and fallen, broken bodies. Uh, my mother-in-law used to. Work, she she wasn't very well schooled at this point, and uh, I remember having a discussion with her about the resurrection, and she was horrified because she's in her nineties, and she thought, "You mean I get this old, kind of decrepit body back?" <laughs> Which she hated because <laughs> she was so you know she had so many ailments and things. What, what a amazing privilege to be able to say, no, you'll be in your prime, your beautiful body. You'll be raised up. And you'll have full of life. You'll be full of life. That's why Jesus says at the end of the parable of the weeds in, in Matthew 13, verse 43, that at the end of the age, the righteous shall shine like the sun. It's a glory which we get from the Lord Jesus Christ because he shines like the sun. And we too will share in that glory and shine like the sun and be full of life. And Paul has this uh, marvelous picture. I think it's a marvelous word picture. The revealing of the sons of God. I think it's just an amazing unveiling that's going to happen. You know, here's God rejoicing and Jesus Christ his son rejoicing as his brothers and sisters are revealed I, I kind of he doesn't say this but it's, I kind of imagine it as a procession of some kind and all creation gets to see the glory of all that Christ has done for his people a glorious consummation of the plan of salvation oh here's the last question what does this mean for now so some practical things uh, for us to think about. Um, Paul, after all, is writing to real Christians at, in real times of suffering. How can this help? How can the knowledge of this truth help? Three things. Number one, the big picture. 
it enables us to get a sense of history and where history is going and where our personal histories are going. That's, uh, we don't see our lives any longer as a sequence of random events that seem to have no point. Why has this happened to me? Why, why do I have to go through this? What, why? Why? We're always asking why, aren't we? Well, we need to see these things differently within the grand scheme of God's redemptive purposes. And we, we need to think that about world events as well. We see problems all over the place. And we see problems in Ukraine, Morocco this weekend. All sorts of things in the Middle East and elsewhere. In many ways, these are not the most important things that are happening in the world. They're important, but they're not the most important things. And the way that I understand it is this. That, and, and I remember my, when I was a 20-something living in Glasgow and listening to my then minister describe it this way and the thing you need to know about Glasgow is it's full of these sandstone tenement buildings and there was a period in the 1980s and into the 90s where all these sandstone tenement buildings were all covered in scaffolding because they, after 100 years of grime in the city they'd become black and, uh, and they had to, be, had to be cleaned off and so you'd have this period of scaffolding being up against the buildings and then eventually the building we would take away and behind is a beautiful pristine building again and this is what it's like with the church of Jesus Christ it kind of looks like it's scaffolding everywhere, it looks like it's a mess and you think there's, you don't know what's going on and you, you don't know what's going on behind the, behind the scenes as it were and uh, all you can see are the scenes you can see the, the trouble in Morocco you can see the trouble in Ukraine you can see all these troubles and you think what's going on behind the scenes and behind the scenes Jesus Christ's church is being built so you've got, got to get a sense of history about what's happening all these events one day are going to be stripped away and the beautiful, pristine church of Jesus Christ is going to be revealed. The sons of God are going to be revealed. So that's the first thing, sense of perspective on history. The second thing is, it gives us hope for how we live our lives now then. So verses 24 and 25. For in this we hope we are saved. Now hope that, and the hope that isn't seen is not hope, but for hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now this hope is not the kind of hope that's an uncertain wish. Like my, the football team of my hometown, Air United, is way down in the depths of the Scottish league system. And uh, I might have a hope that it wins the Champions League, but that's never going to happen. <laughs> it's, you know, not in my lifetime, I don't think. And um, unless you get some petrodollars into air, <laughs> which is not likely. Um, but you know, it's not that kind of hope we're talking about. You know, a vague wish that something rather incredible will happen. This is a definite hope that because it is definitely going to happen, gives us a certainty and a solidity uh, right now. So it gives us hope for how we live today. Thirdly, and lastly, the doctrine of glorification gives courage to the sufferer. Uh, So verse 18, we looked at, I consider that the sufferings of the present time 
are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Uh, Christians are suffering. And you may be suffering today. Maybe not in the same way. But you're suffering. And it, it encompasses the whole range of possible sufferings. It could be persecution. It could be physical suffering. It could be afflictions of various kinds. The sufferings of temptations that you struggle with. All kinds of sufferings that come into our lives. And how easy it would be for those sufferings to wear you down. And for you to lose hope. And you begin to wonder whether Christianity really works. Well, be encouraged. For this very good reason that suffering is actually the path that we need to go through to get to glory. Suffering is a path that we need to walk on to get to the end. But we will get to the end. And we will endure. Now Paul's point in that verse 18 is not simply to make a comparison between present suffering and future glory and then for you to say, well, it's not so bad after all. That's not his point. His point is that your suffering is actually purposeful. God intends it for something. Verse 17. We're heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That's interesting, isn't it? Provided we suffer. A person who's wanting to avoid suffering He's not going to get to glory. It's purposeful, you see. It has a point to it. And it leads to glory. So if you're suffering today, take courage. Something is being achieved in you. And maybe you don't realize yet. But endure, press on. Keep your eyes fixed on that glory to come. And one day you will enter into it. Glorification. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this prospect that's before us. We thank you that you are um, ever present with us in all our sufferings and trials. But we thank you that you hold out to us this sure and certain hope of glory to come. And we pray that you'd uh, enable us to continue and to endure for Jesus' sake. Amen.